Uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of your word, your word that brings light and life, healing and hope. We pray that you would direct our hearts to worshiping you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I was listening to a, a Christian uh, radio station um, earlier this week, and uh, you know how they have these little taglines that they, they say uh, before and after the shows, like on K-Love, it's like positive, encouraging, K-Love, and I, I don't listen to this other station very often, but they said, uh, they had one I hadn't heard before, they said, worship God wherever you want, or something like that. I'm in the car, so I'm not writing it down. Maybe you've heard it, worship God wherever you want. And of course, I'm a pastor, I think deeply about these things, they just sent me down this whole rabbit trail of thoughts, so I'm like, okay, am I really worshiping in the car right now, or is this just background music while I drive around doing my chores and errands? Is it still worship in the fullest sense of the word if I'm all by myself? Are all these songs even really truly worship songs? In fact, how is a worship song different from a regular song? And what about all the other aspects of worship? I mean, we're saying just the singing is worship, but what about worshiping God through scripture reading and through prayer and, and through uh, breaking bread and drinking the cup together as we do here on Sunday mornings? I know, I should just chill out a little and just... <laughs> listen to the music, but like this is literally my job. I get paid to think deeply on these things. But, um, but it, it does matter because worship matters to God, right? Worship is deeply important to God. It's what we were created to do. So it makes sense that God would then give us clear instructions about how to worship in a way that is, you know, worshipful, Right? And this becomes increasingly clear as we look in the Old Testament, as we go through the instructions uh, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, and specifically here in chapter 12. Moses goes to great lengths in this chapter, and in the chapters, the next five or six chapters, to emphasize the fact that true worship is determined by God, not us. True worship is determined by God not us. He's the one who sets the parameters, the boundaries, the borders for the who, what, where, when, and why of worship. He drives the bus, so to speak. As we look at chapter 12 this morning, it is a fairly long chapter, and we're going to look at it by, through the lens of three questions that I'm going to ask of our text this morning. Where should we worship? Who is it who should be worshiping? Who should be worshiping? And how should we worship? And then we'll conclude at the end with a brief word about our, our heart motivations as we're approaching worship. So the first question I want to start with today seems maybe like a, a, a no-brainer. Like, where can we worship? Right? Uh, now, if I had to summarize the chapter in three words, let me just summarize it for you in three words. Location, location, location. <laughs> Sound like a, like, a, like a cheap realtor or something. It's like location, location, location. That's, that's what the summary of our chapter is. Look at this. Six times in our um, passage, Moses repeats more or less the same admonition. 
but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose. Take care that you don't offer your burnt offerings at any old place, but at the place that the Lord, your cho- the Lord will choose. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far away from you. And, then, and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose. So where are the people supposed to worship? The place where the Lord will choose. Yes, exactly. But that's still kind of vague, right? It's like, okay, awesome. But where is that exactly? Uh, well, Moses in this chapter doesn't name a specific location. We didn't read the whole chapter at the beginning. You didn't miss anything. He doesn't call out Jerusalem, although maybe that's where our, our minds wander off to. And I think because Moses is pushing for something a little bit deeper here. So look with me at verse 5. He says, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. So first, as we already noted, the Lord is the one who will choose this place. Wherever it ends up being, that decision is for God to make, not the people. So you see this pattern, right, throughout Scripture. God chooses Israel. God's the one who rescues them out of Egypt. God's the one who brings them to the mountain. God's the one who gives them the law. The, the law. God's the one who leads them through the wilderness. God is the one who consistently provides for them every step of the way. God's the one who promises them the land. God's the one who says, I will wipe out all your enemies before you. And now, God will also be the one to choose the place of worship. God makes the first move every single time. He leads. The people are supposed to follow. That's the pattern. So this question of worship becomes first and foremost an issue of trust. Right? And it's, a, it's an exercise in faithful obedience. In other words, will the people resist the temptation to rush into doing things their own way? Will they patiently wait on the Lord to reveal his specific plans and purposes? Or will they do their own thing instead? Will they embrace the ways of those around them instead? Because it's more expedient, more comfortable, easier tests that we ourselves continue to struggle with today. So first, the focus on the location is about God's sovereignty in choosing. But there's a second key here. Uh, Not only will God choose the place, but in that place, he will put his name and make his habitation. Put his name and make his habitation. So what is focus on his name, and, and how will God dwell among his people? Well, to answer those questions, I want to go up in the text just a little bit, or backwards, whichever way you want to look at it, verses 2 through 4. We already heard these read, uh, Nathan read this for us before the service. The destruction of all the Canaanite religious shrines, and altars, right? Dash, tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, burn their asherim, chop down the carved images, 
and what? And destroy their name out of that place. Now, it's tempting to kind of skim over this. Okay, again, with the destruction of the pagan stuff, I get it. But the reality is that Moses here is exhorting total, unwavering allegiance to God. Because the people are entering into the land, they are quickly going to find themselves surrounded by all kinds of different shrines, altars, and idols, representing any one of a number of different gods and, and, and images on the high mountains, on the hills, he said, and in the forests, in the trees, anywhere where there's abundant fertility, signs of fertility, or up on the mountains so we can be closer to the gods. And although these gods were false gods, they're nothing, they still held an enormous amount of power over the Canaanites. And that power was linked closely to their name. Now, kids, uh, I, uh, I'm guessing that a number of you have stuff that has your name written on it. Maybe you didn't put it on there, but your parents did like your water bottle, your backpack, uh, your Bible, your clothes. That was always the worst for me as a kid, like my name emblazoned on every piece of clothing I had, lest it gets lost or something. And that label is just a way of saying to the world, this is mine, right? This is mine. This is my notebook. This is my Bible. This is my stuff. Obviously, there's nothing like religious or spiritual or powerful about that. But you go back to the ancient world where idolatry was real and ever-present, and the names of those gods held power over those people. And so a shrine or a temple or a pillar or even just a wooden uh, a pole with carvings on it was a way of announcing to the world, this place, it's mine. Which, of course, also means these people they're mine. That was the power of a name. It was about ownership. And ownership then becomes about identity. Think about it. To whom do you belong? Because how you answer that question will determine everything else in life. To whom do you belong? Am I the master of my own fate? Am I the captain of my own soul, as, as the poem goes? Because that's certainly the dominant religion of today, right? Satan knows we wouldn't willingly or knowingly take his name upon us, right? But Satan also knows how deeply in love we are with ourselves and how quickly we'll rush to assume ownership of our own lives our own destinies, our own fortunes. That's why I love one of the, the early catechisms from the Reformation called the Heidelberg Catechism. We just, we just sung this a few moments ago, right? What is your only comfort in life and in death? It's the first question they ask. What is the only comfort in life and death? It's about possession, that I am not my own, but I I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my Savior, faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
The reformers were saying, in effect, this question of belonging determines everything else in life. It cuts to the core of your identity. Who you are is determined by whose you are. And the Exodus narrative has been about all about establishing God's exclusive claims over his chosen people. In fact, the entire Bible, right, is, is a record of God's exclusive claims over all of creation. And as such, there can be no room for any other competing claims of ownership. They must be torn down and destroyed. And in their place, God will establish his name, his place, his dwelling, announcing to the world, these people are mine. God saying, these people, they're mine. They belong to me. So going back to our original question at the beginning, where's the specific location that God is going to choose? It's vague and unclear because in the end, identifying like the pinpoint geographical location, that's not really the main point. The main point is identifying unwavering allegiance to God alone. Whether that worship takes place in Bethel or Shechem or Shiloh or Jerusalem or even in none of those places. For those of us who live now in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's part of what Jesus is talking about with the Samaritan woman, right? What are you doing arguing about this mountain or that one? Wherever, the main point is that the people must reject all competing claims of ownership and submit themselves completely to worshiping God alone, wherever, whenever, however that looks. And the same, of course, applies to us today. We must root out and reject all competing claims of spiritual ownership in our lives. There are many, right? Work, sports, even hobbies can become all consuming, taking the first fruits, if you will, of, uh, of our time, our, our energy, our attention, our money. These good gifts, right? Work and, and relaxation and everything else, good gifts. But they can become dangerous idols when we fail to see the grasp that they have on our hearts, our souls, our minds, when all our, our thoughts, all our energy and time and efforts are directed towards something else. You know, one of the gravest sins called out by the prophets and detailed in, the, in, the, in the history books is when the people of God, they would continue to worship God and also keep worshiping these other false gods as well. It was like, let's just go ahead and just do it all. Let's just mix them all together. May we be people who resist that temptation and do whatever it takes to center our hearts on God alone. That's his first point here. Where should we worship? And the point there is ultimately uh, the focus of our worship, God himself. But I want to look at a, a related question here. Who does Moses expect to be doing the worshiping? Who should worship God? Obvious answer, you're all thinking, is like, well, isn't that everyone? <laughs> like, everyone should be worshiping God? Yes, definitely. But bear with me here because Moses is a teacher, right? And he wants to teach the people something very specific about worship. So uh, if we look here at verses 5 
through 7. Moses says, There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, the contributions, vow offerings, all these offerings. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake. You see that little phrase there, you and your households. Like we talk all the time in here about the importance of family discipleship, and with good reason, because it's embedded right here in Scripture. Right? Not, not isolated individuals honing a private life of, of personal devotion, but whole families worshiping together, singing, offering sacrifices, praying, presenting offerings to God. Look at verse 6 up there. Ever the teacher, I can sort of imagine uh, Moses saying, um, uh, the family that tithes together stays together. <laughs> But do you ever talk about tithing or giving in your families? Like, you're like we're going to sing songs, read the Bible together. Great, but, but how are we incorporating all the elements of our worship together in our family? These are the people that we give to. This is why we give to them. This is how we're doing them. Not just as a teaching exercise, but as a, a, an act of worshiping God together. This is something we're engaging in together as a whole household. And if you think I'm making too much about this single world household, look down in your text to verses 11 through 14. This is what I mean by household. You and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your towns. Everyone worshiping together. Not just the traditional nuclear family, right? Like mom and dad and two kids. But really everyone who's living together in that household we don't have servants anymore, but, but today many people live with like a broader household, right? You have grandparents living with you, or aunts, or uncles, or cousins, or sometimes even strangers, or, or people that you're showing hospitality to for a season of time. I remember when our kids were much younger, and uh, there were some kids who lived next door to us, and, and their parents were going through this really messy divorce, and so they were over at our house like all the time, eating meals with us, spending like hours and hours, like a, sort of like adopted children in a way. And so we didn't wait to do family worship until after they left, right, or when they weren't around. We just included them in that. It's like, we're just going to go ahead and pray and read and talk about Jesus together. So what about you? Like, who can you sort of fold into your times of family worship this week? Or maybe if that's too overwhelming or, or scary, how can you incorporate moments of worship into the hospitality that you're already showing to other people? So instead of restricting it like just a meal, like how can I work more prayer into this time together? Because that's what we'd be doing together anyway as a family. Or, or how can I be asking deeper spiritual questions, incorporating conversation about faith into my fellowship with these guests? Because this is what we do together as a family anyway, right? We're talking about God's work in our lives. So let's just keep doing that with those around us. So when it comes to worship, obviously it's about attending church together, but really it's so much more. Like what I want you to see here, Moses 
He casts a vision for a lifestyle of worship that really expands beyond just our Sunday morning gatherings into the fabric of your family's lives during every moment of the week. Not just the specific moments of Bible reading, but in your decision-making, your rest, your work, your vacations, even, even the times of silliness and celebration. But more than that, it's a vision for hospitality that includes those who have less than us, with the unifying component being a shared worship of the Lord. So I think that's why Moses includes a reference here to the servants and to the Levites. Right? Remember, none of the Levites uh, were allotted any territory in the promised land. So everyone else, they got a plot of land. That's their, like family inheritance. They can live on it and work on it. And the Levites are not given that. They're completely reliant on support from the people whose communities that they were a part of. So that's why Moses mentions them again in verse 19. Take care that you don't neglect the Levite. The implication being that the people should, should include the Levites in their household, caring for their needs. Of course, we don't have Levites anymore. But this principle is historically why people have supported uh, pastors and, and missionaries, right? Paying, uh, paying them. Because we recognize that missionaries have set aside their inheritance in this world in order to serve God in full-time ministry. And we want to care for their needs. Which I know many of you do, but can I just add something in there that I think it's really meant to be more than just a financial arrangement. That's the vision here. It's not just, hey, make sure to just you know, cut them a check every, every now and then, like, like the auto bill that you have on auto debit. But really engaging them in your household, even at a distance. So, you know, you, emailing missionaries that you support, getting on a Zoom call with them, texting them, writing them a letter, looking for ways to extend that relationship beyond just a financial obligation that you've committed to. Look, missionaries often serve God far away from friends and family members. And so in a sense, you're their household for them, even as you're supporting them financially. So especially as we move into towards Thanksgiving and Christmas, what are some ways that, that we together as our immediate households can be supporting those missionaries more holistically, relationally? So, as Moses, uh, so to answer that question then, who should be worshiping God in the place where he chooses? Everyone, of course. But specifically in this text, Moses wants to draw attention to the fact that you have entire households worshiping God together in community and drawing in others around them as well. So we talked about where we should worship, who should worship, one final giant question for today is, how should we worship? Like I said, we could talk about that for weeks. But focusing our conversation really on the text at hand in Deuteronomy 12, Moses does want to make a few points here. Well, first of all, look at verse 8. Negatively, 
Moses wants to be really clear. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. The first thing Moses wants to make really clear, when it comes to worship, whatever you're accustomed to doing, it has to stop. Right? Whatever freedom or flexibility that came as a result of their nomadic lifestyle would have to change as soon as they settled in the promised land. And once they entered into that rest, then they would be required to bring all that God commanded them, their burnt offerings and sacrifices and tithes and all of that to, to the Lord. And Moses doesn't have to explain what those are, right? Like, go to the book of Leviticus. It's all detailed how you should do the burnt offering. His point is simply, when you enter the promised land, you will need to start doing everything that you've been taught. It's like, okay, this is like go time. Now you've got to start putting into practice everything that I've explained to you. But it's not just about the actions. Moses is going to push a little deeper again. So look down in uh, verse 15. Long section here, but let me read it to you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it as of the gazelle and as as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter and your male servant and the Levite You shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. So, whoa, what is going on? Can you eat meat or can you not eat meat? Right? And why do they need permission to eat meat? And what is the difference between the gazelle and the deer and the other sacrifices? And what does this have to do with worship? Well, most of us live so far removed from the process of raising and slaughtering animals that this whole section here can seem a little strange, right? We're so far removed from this. I mean, you can just go to Portillo's, order a cheeseburger and a Polish sausage, and wait a few minutes, and then it's right there in a paper bag, like, order 52, your order is due. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, well, we, one person likes Portillo's. <laughs> it's amazing. Now, who knows how it got there? I don't really care. I'm just hungry, and I want that cheese fries, right? But if you go back in time just a few hundred years, or maybe just even go out, West of here, a few hundred miles, you'll quickly find out all that's involved in bringing food to your table, right? All the intervening steps that we don't really like to think about a whole lot. So back to our passage. Now, why do the people need permission to eat meat? Well, because according to the book of Leviticus, uh, I think it's chapter 17, the slaughter of most common farm animals was to be done in the context of a sacrificial setting, in the tabernacle, before a priest. 
So you couldn't just wake up from a nice afternoon nap and be like, oh, you know, I feel like a nice ribeye this afternoon. And, right? You had to prepare ahead of time. There was this whole process that you had to go through, and you had to go down to the temple and, and have the meat sacrificed as part of a formal act of worship by a priest. Now, this wasn't the case for wild game that you caught out while hunting. So that's the reference here to the gazelle and to the deer. That meat, you can just kill and eat that as you want. No temple, no priest required. So now we get to Deuteronomy 12. God's gracious provision for his people in this passage is twofold. First, there's this reminder once again in verse 15. God is the one who will provide abundantly for the literal, physical, tangible needs of his people. Right? Your relationship with God is so much more than just a collection of spiritual truths or, or, or spiritual experiences. Right? God is intimately involved in the concrete, the tangible stuff of your life. Right? Parenting, marriage, pregnancy, childbirth, yard work, car repair, and even eating, especially eating. It's such a big deal all through Scripture. So first we see this reminder that God graciously provides for us. And so we can embrace that and enjoy his blessings in our lives. I look forward eagerly to this fellowship meal that we're going to enjoy at the end of this service. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, a good gift from God. But second, we see that God graciously provides freedom here, space in our relationship with him. So God says, look, when you enter this new land, you're going to be all spread out. And it's not going to be practical for you to bring every single animal to the temple to be sacrificed by a priest just because you're hungry and you need to eat. So given that, it's okay for you to sacrifice, uh, for you to, 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 to slaughter these animals and eat meat. And he says right here, whenever you desire, when you're craving meat, if you have meat that God has given to you, you can eat it. Just as you would for the gazelle or deer. There's no difference. Now, why does he say that? Because ultimately, the eating of the meat in and of itself is not even really the point. Right? The instructions are about worshiping God. What do I mean by that? Well, first... Uh, Moses frees up the people to eat meat for food, lest that would cause like an undue burden. But, and this is where the worship component comes in, he doubles down on two key points relating to worship. So first, the people are still required, look at the text, you are still required to bring your formal burnt offerings and, and tithes and, and vows and all those formal sacrifices, those still need to be brought to God and offered to him in the manner that God has ordained. It's like, if you're just hungry and want to eat meat, go ahead and eat meat. Do that anywhere you want. But 
If this is going to be a sacrifice, if this is a vow, a tithe, a burnt offering, you can't just do that any old place. You still need to bring that to God in the place that he has determined. They must resist the temptation to offer sacrifices in any other place than the place named by God. The second aspect of worship here is if you look at verse 16, the people are forbidden from eating the blood. Not just as like a dietary rule, but as a deeply religious act of worship. As Moses says in verse 23, the blood represents life. It was deeply, incredibly significant. To eat the blood, even of an animal killed and simply eaten to stave off hunger, to eat that blood would be sacrilegious. And so on the one hand, when it comes to God's provision, Moses kind of loosens uh, uh, the application here of the law, allowing them to kill and eat meat as needed. But at the same time, he also tightens the restrictions by refocusing their attention on the worship of God doubling down on this prohibition against eating the blood, reminding them of the necessity of these sacrifices to God and the importance of doing it in the way that God has, has prescribed for them. And it's in this sense, then, that the, the, the eating meat, something that we take completely for granted, becomes then a, a really a worshipful act. Whether people are ki- killing and eating in the temple or in their own households. Now, this isn't an argument for or against eating meat and, or even the kinds of meat. The emphasis here is on the worshiping God through that common act of eating together. As we wrap um, this chapter up, there, there's one key word, uh, again, in this passage that we haven't really touched on. It's a word that captures God's heart for his people, a word that casts a vision for how we should approach all our worship, a word that summarizes our relationship with God and ties together all these different aspects relating to the sacrificial system. And that key word is joy. Three times in just 12 verses, Moses reminds the people that worship should fill them with joy. It says, look, verse 7, there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice. And again in verse 12, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And again in verse 18, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Look, meeting with God in worship should be an opportunity for celebration. This is the high point of the week. Right, the moment when the people of God encounter their Lord and Savior. More than that, when they hear from him, when he speaks to them through his word. When we sing to him, when we pray to him, when we have an opportunity to, to share a meal with him. For these few brief hours, you can press pause on all the other cares and worries of this world 
and be reminded of God's awesome power and majesty and find a few moments of rest in his presence. Now, I know I've been going to church long enough that I know this doesn't happen every time, right? I I totally get it. Not every Sunday morning experience is going to be this like, wow, moment. The, The stresses in our lives are too much. The burdens are too heavy. The songs don't always strike our hearts. The sermons may lack power or interest. We're easily distracted, easily bored. But joy is not always simply a spontaneous emotion that we have no control over. We can, in fact, choose to rejoice. And we see this kind of rejoicing modeled for us in Scripture, uh, in, the, in the Psalms, and, and in the prophets, and even in Paul. I choose to rejoice. I choose to rejoice. I choose to rejoice. Even in times of suffering, struggle, pain, heartache, loss, exile. Even when we don't feel like it. We can choose to celebrate. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's worth celebrating. That's worth rejoicing over. Paul, you can take everything else away from me in my life. And if all I have is Jesus, praise the Lord. I will rejoice in that. Even on a bad week. In fact, it's especially true on a bad week. That's when we most need to rejoice in God's presence. When the temptation to retreat and withdraw is at its greatest. And when the weight of guilt and shame feels crushing. So this morning, we're about to break bread and share the cup together. And as we do that, I want you to drink deeply from the fountain of forgiveness offered to you in Christ, to rejoice in his abundant provision and his unending patience and love for you, and worship the Lord in this place that he has chosen. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for this gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who enables us to enter into true worship of you, wherever we are. Lord, we thank you for this gift, and we pray that you would help us to worship you, to rejoice in your presence this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.